Welcome to the Start Me Up podcast, part of the Sexy Liberal Podcast Network. I'm Kimberly, fully vaccinated Johnson in D.C. Today, I have such a fascinating guest. His name is Christian Picciolini. He is an ex-Nazi, an award-winning television producer, a public speaker, author, a peace advocate, and a former violent extremist. We're going to talk about his book, Breaking Hate, Confronting the New Culture of Extremism, and talk about his journey from neo-Nazi to ex-neo-Nazi. It's a fascinating story, but before we get into that conversation, I do try to keep these intros short. I have a tier on Patreon, though, that allows listeners to listen ad-free and with a much shorter intro. The Start Me Up podcast is an independent podcast supported by listeners and it's woman-run. It's patrons who keep this show going, and I'm so grateful. If you do enjoy today's show, take a look at the About page, check out some of my past guests. Most of the time, I talk to political people. Sometimes I talk to actors, because I used to be one, but just visit Patreon dot com slash start me up i do two free shows a week on mondays and wednesdays and they're followed up by the what's up show which is just me alone talking about whatever i feel like kind of like an online diary i also do one patrons only show with a guest once a month just check out the variety of tier options at patreon.com slash start me up you can make a one-time donation by checking out the text in the patreon description i've included a link that makes it easy to donate through paypal you can find start me up on itunes stitcher and wherever podcasts are found just stop by the iTunes app, Apple Podcast Store, become a subscriber. It's free. And while you're there, if you like the show, please rate it and leave a review. I would really appreciate it. Now, please enjoy my conversation with Christian Picciolini. Welcome to the show, Christian. Hi, Kimberly. It's good to be here. You are really an interesting guy. <laughs> I, I cannot remember where it is that I saw you. I think it might have been on MSNBC, and I honestly do not remember the time frame but as soon as I saw you I contacted you and asked you to be on my podcast and you're like hey I'm really busy um but I was so grateful and surprised because I completely forgotten about this I got your email saying hey my schedule has freed up so um I I in the intro I let everybody know you are an ex-neo-nazi and you have a book out called Breaking Hate, Confronting the New Culture of Extremism. And we're going to talk about that and everything involved. But I just kind of want you to give a, a brief overview of your situation, that you are an ex-Nazi and what you're doing now. And then we'll get into your book. You bet. Yeah, from uh, 1987 to 1996, uh, from the time I was 14 years old until I was roughly 23 years old, I was a member of America's first uh, neo-Nazi or white power skinhead group. Um, hmm. I grew up in Chicago, uh, and most people don't know that, but that's kind of where the, the neo-Nazi skinhead movement started in, hmm. in the mid-80s. And as a 14-year-old kid uh, growing up on the south side of Chicago, um, you know, I wasn't raised in you know, a white supremacist household. In fact, my parents are Italian immigrants who came to the U.S. in the mid-60s, and, and when they arrived, were often the victims of, of hmm. prejudice. Wow. Um, yeah, so, I mean, it wasn't something I was raised in, and, and, and I always tell people in the work that I do now, uh, I've been helping uh, kind of disengage people from hate groups for the last 20 plus years. Mm -hmm. What I try and, and, and let people know is most people aren't drawn to those types of ideologies because of the ideology. Mm -hmm. uh, instead, they're on a search for uh, a sense of identity, community, and purpose. And certainly at 14 years old, I was searching for those three very important things that all of us search for. Yeah. Uh, but I had hit what I call potholes along the way. Um, you know, my pothole and potholes are things like trauma, adverse kind of experiences, uh, sometimes even 
challenges with mental health or grief, loss, um, you know, trauma, mm-hmm. essentially. My, my pothole was abandonment. Uh, and because my parents were Italian immigrants and had to work extremely hard, I rarely saw them hmm. growing up. Yeah. Um, they were always working seven days a week and, you know, 14 hours a day. So I, I kind of was raised on my own and always wondered what I had done to push, push my parents away, not Aww. knowing at that age that, you know, they were just trying to work hard to support the family. Yeah. And as I got older, I figured that out. But at that age, when we're so desperate to figure out who we are, where we belong and what we're supposed to do with our lives, somebody saw in me an opportunity to intervene. And uh, at 14, I was radicalized when I was standing in an alley, smoking a joint. And this guy with a shaped head and boots walked up to me. And of course, it was 1987. Nobody knew what a skinhead was back mm-hmm. then. It was very new to the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, he walked up to me, he pulled a joint from my mouth, looked me in the eyes, and he said, that's what the communists and the Jews want you to do to keep you docile. Kimberly, at 14, I didn't know what the heck communist was. Right, I didn't know yeah. if I'd met a Jewish person. I didn't even know what the word docile meant. But it was the <laughs> first person at that time in my life who paid any attention to me. So I mm-hmm. kind of you know bit hook line and sinker and i went down a path where i found acceptance in a in a group that was kind of completely against the dna of how i'd been brought up um and and you know i went deeper and deeper because i found um you know at the time i thought was a reward uh you know respect and agency in Mm -hmm. this group uh and i didn't see the things that i was saying and the things that i was doing uh as detrimental until of course i obviously did and uh, at 23 years old, I decided to, to take a step away from essentially the only thing that I'd ever known at, at that point and had become a leader in. And I've used the last 20 years or so uh, to try and, and really focus on repairing the damage that I caused because there was so much of it. Um, you know, and repairing the harm in communities and, and uh, you know, people who I was against during that time and also my own family. Um, and been using what I've learned kind of along the way to to really try and advise and help other people who are going down that path uh, disengage and also repair the harm they've caused. Uh, one of the interviews that I saw you on, you talked about how it could have easily been uh, a positive intervention, like some with somebody who had positive intentions with you, because you were that oh, susceptible. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, had at 14 years old, had uh, you know a group of you know skateboarders or you know ballerinas for that matter come up <laughs> yeah. to me in that alley. I you know I probably would have been the greatest skateboarder or dancer on earth. Wow. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, that didn't happen, uh, and it didn't happen at all. Um, you know, for the first 14 years of my life, and and I know that you know had a soccer coach or a baseball coach walked up to me the same time as that skinhead did mm-hmm. i would have gladly chosen you know to go play sports uh, it just didn't happen that way unfortunately and, and the one person who saw me as kind of a vulnerable mm-hmm. you know um, recruit was this predator who at the time was america's first neo-nazi skinhead leader the man who recruited me essentially started the skinhead movement in the wow. united states so what walk us through a day i mean we're going to get to your book but i mean walk us through a day or a week of the life of living as a neo-nazi at that time what i mean you know how often were you talking about things what kinds of things were you doing just guide us through like a week yeah, I mean, and it's probably no different than what a white nationalist or a white supremacist goes goes through today. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I kind of 
grew up in that movement in the 80s and 90s when I was a teenager uh, and, and until I was a young adult. But it's really no different than a lot of the stories of the people that I work with today. Uh, but, you know, a typical day would have depended on, uh, you know, where what stage I was in that movement during those eight years. At first, when I was younger, it was about proving myself. It was about staying a part of that group that now accepted me, the first group that ever accepted me, I felt. So it was about doing things that would cement you into that group. Uh, fight, street fights, uh, saying things, you know, vocally, uh, you know, promoting the ideology at places like, you know, high school and, and things like that and recruiting other new members. And it, it really, once you're involved in, in that movement, it becomes your whole life. There really is no keeping one foot in the real world and one foot in that world. It's not acceptable. Um, however, there are doubts, mm-hmm. um, you know, there were for me, for sure, those eight, every day of those eight years that I was involved. And unfortunately, it wasn't the kind of safe place where I could explore those doubts. Mm-hmm. Um, and the outside world really wasn't a place where I could explore those doubts either at the time, because they weren't willing to accept me once they knew who I was, and rightfully so. I yeah. think. Um, so it was, wasn't a really great environment for me to question things or explore the only other option was to go deeper and deeper Mm -hmm. to get more respect or what i thought was respect anyway um so you know as it progressed and i got older within that movement i eventually became a leader uh and i started to teach other people how to recruit and how to spread propaganda uh and by the time i was you know 17 or 18 years old i had started one of america's first white power music bands to to really promote the ideology through music because i recognized at that time that you know, a, a way to, to gather young people and to kind of, uh, you know, get them pepped up like they were at a pep rally was through music. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I started one of America's first kind of radical white power bands and, and started to recruit people through my music. So then, you know, life be- began or became, you know, more of touring around the country and even the world. I performed in Germany to thousands of people and, and, um, but, you know, in the middle of all of this, I started a family. At 19 years old, I met a girl uh, and who wasn't a part of the movement. Mm-hmm. And somehow she accepted me um, because she saw another side of me that, you know, was a very personal, very kind of introspective mm-hmm. and kind side uh, outside of the movement. Mm-hmm. And we got married and had children. And that was the biggest, um, I think, change for me that challenged me out of the movement because it was the first thing in my life to enter that challenged my sense of identity, community, mm-hmm. and purpose that I'd found. Suddenly I had to ask myself, you know, am I a father or am I a hate monger? Wow, uh, and they yeah. couldn't coexist. Uh, you know, is my community the one that I had surrounded myself with to boost my ego or was it the one I had physically you know, given life to and, and promised to, to keep safe and purpose? You know, was I going to burn the world down because I was angry? Yeah. Because I was I was projecting my own self-hatred onto other people that I never even knew but hated them. Mm-hmm. Or was it to, like, provide for my family? So it was, like, the first thing that entered my life that challenged who I was. And I think mm. it was the most powerful wedge um, for me to kind of disengage and refocus what was important to me. So what when you're in that movement and it's just, you know, a couple of you sitting around talking... Um, and, and you're, you know, you're discussing your motivations and your goals. What kinds of things did you talk about? Well, it was a lot of talk about creating a white homeland uh, mm-hmm. and about all the things that were a threat to that 
uh, and again, things haven't changed much in the, mm-hmm. in the 30 years since I was involved. Yeah. You know, people in those movements are still talking about, you know, being replaced. We mm-hmm. heard those, you know, those words being chanted in Charlottesville. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the idea of a great replacement theory where whites are going to be, uh, you know, there will be a genocide against white culture because there are more people being born who are, you know, black or brown. Mm-hmm. Um, how cultures are being shifted away from kind of dominant white cultures to, you know, now more inclusive cultures. And that to them is a big fear. And they mm-hmm. use kind of false and bogus statistics to uh, instill that sort of fear, you know, through rhetoric. Um, so, yeah, it was a lot of talk about how do you, you know, how do we create a safe place for, you know, white culture? Uh, but, you know, I got to tell you, it wasn't like, you know, how do we, how do we kindly do this? It was, right. it was a very violent, you know, intention, yeah. right? How do we eliminate people so that they're not a part of our, or threatening, you know, our culture or a part of our culture? Well, what were, what um, were some of the ways that you thought to yeah. eliminate? I mean, it's, I've got, I'm so curious about this because I totally understand that this is, these are the same conversations going on by white nationalists now, and you give us this opportunity to kind of go inside that world and see yeah. what, what, what they can justify. Well, you know, they're they're all, and unfortunately, the same conversations that white politicians are having these days, who are on the right, because they're talk, they're still talking about voter suppression. Mm-hmm. They're still enacting policies to, you know, to remove agency from the people yeah. that they want to disenfranchise. Right? How do you maintain power? Well, you take power away from everybody else, mm-hmm. uh, and that has been a practice of white supremacy for 400 years, yeah. not you know, just in my generation. So, you know, while our conversations were about how do we disempower people, you know, through violence, uh, you know, white supremacists these days in in more mainstream circles are are still talking about disempowerment through legal practices. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, how how do we make sure people can't vote or make it very, very difficult to vote so that they can't put in into power people who can enact change for them mm-hmm. uh, how, how, how do we make it difficult through systemic laws and, and practices for people to survive or, or to gain any sort of momentum uh, or to accumulate wealth uh, or things like that so while we weren't in small circles talking about you know how do we control lending practices mm-hmm. we were t- talking about more you know violence violence and intimidation mm-hmm. uh, you know things you see like from groups like the Proud Boys yeah. or from a lot of the white nationalists marching, but also, you know, knowing that we had people who were running for local office for school boards, right. who, you know, in smaller places where they would go unopposed mm-hmm. with a lower barrier to entry would get into these positions of power where they could control things on a micro level. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, we think about school boards, they can, they have a lot of power in their local communities, you know, elected judges and, and, uh, you know, local attorneys general who essentially they, they strategize what laws are going to be in their community. And if there are racist intentions behind that, they can be geared systemically towards populations they want to control. And that, that is what is still happening. What has happened for 400 years and what now we're starting to realize it's something we haven't talked about for our whole existence as a nation, well, I mean, white people haven't talked about it, right? People of color have been screaming about it for 400 years. White people are now, some of them are just now starting to become tuned into some of those, you know, inequities that we've been complicit mm-hmm. in, mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, for forever. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what do you think, what kind of roles do Fox News and Tucker Carlson play in the white supremacy movement? 
because obviously it, it seems to me, you know, when you listen to somebody like Tucker Carlson, uh, he blows those dog whistles and he, he doesn't necessarily, he actually, he isn't really hiding anything more, you know, hiding anything, but I mean, Fox news in you know, just in a broader view and then Tucker Carlson specifically as somebody who used to be in this movement, how do you see that playing into the movement? You know, I would say it's probably their current greatest radicalization factor. If hmm. you think of somebody like me who at 16 or 17 years old made music that maybe reached thousands of people and certainly recruited, you know, hundreds if not thousands of people through the message that I put out on, you know, on my own through some mm -hmm. unheard of label with no internet. And you compare that to something like Fox News, which hmm. is a 24-hour propaganda channel for the same types of things that I was talking about 30 years ago and you're right you know at first over the last you know couple of years there there were ways to hide it to make it mm -hmm. dog whistles to kind of you know make the the message more palatable so that they could reach more people mm -hmm. well they've kind of stopped doing that you know there are there are times and, and i watch fox news just to kind of research it along with other news there are times when what they're saying on fox news is nearly identical I mean, without wow. mincing words, nearly yeah. identical to what a neo-Nazi, you know, 16, 17, 18-year-old Christian Picciolini would have said. Um, so, and, and that goes even further. I mean, we had a president of the United States, the former President Trump, who would also parrot a lot of those things. Mm -hmm. So you, yes. you combine, you know, somebody in the greatest position in the world, you know, the president of the United States, and an influential, you know, and I'm putting up air quotes, news channel, yeah. like Fox News, uh, with their viewership, you were talking about a propaganda machine and a radicalization machine that still continues to this day. Uh, it is far greater than anything I could have done, anything that, you know, any neo-Nazi that I knew, including David Duke and, you know, people like Tom Metzger and, and, and you know, various Klan groups could have ever thought to do. Mm -hmm. Pro Fox News is the same propaganda arm of that same white supremacist movement that I was a part of, and, and they're reaching for far more people than than that movement ever dreamed of today and then of course you add in the internet i remember watching uh there's a guy named louis theroux who works i mm -hmm. think it was for the bbc and he went into like kkk world and i remember just being so completely i, I just this was probably during the bush years that i saw this and I was absolutely horrified. I mean, I, I, I know the KKK existed and I'm very familiar. I, I've always been just personally kind of shocked by white supremacy. And it, it has always been abhorrent and scary to me. And it's like I, I saw some of these children being indoctrinated into this ideology and it was just horrific. But I wanted to ask you because now the now we've got fox news and we've got the internet which makes organizing because i think in i think in that if it wasn't that it was something else where it was an ex-kkk guy was saying it was much more difficult before the internet to organize obviously because you just could be low you know you had to do local stuff you had to do flyers but now right. people across the globe can um or at least across the nation can organize very quickly and so I saw some interview with you where you were talking about the language I think that was the Comedy Central one and you were talking about how um, you had to normalize because like you know going up to someone and say hey do you want to be in the white supremacy movement would turn people off so can you kind of talk right. about the language of the movement and how it's evolved 
Yeah, and, and you know, the internet really was kind of a boosting factor because mm -hmm. it, it brought radicalization into everybody's living room, mm -hmm. onto their phones. It, you know, you didn't recruiters didn't have to go find somebody. It, you know, people were finding it, and then algorithms started to curate those things for us. Uh, yeah, I mean, the the way the language has has changed is, you know, if you can imagine. You know, somebody wearing a, a swastika T-shirt, waving a swastika flag, and going up to you know a, a kind of a middle-class white person and saying, "Hey, do you want to be a white supremacist?" Yeah. I think most people would would be like, "No, you know, like <laughs> I don't want anything to do with you, even if they are racist." Right. right? They're right, right. you know the flag, the swastika, the the image. It's it's not something that was attractive to most people. And I think what happened in the 80s and 90s is those those people, Klan and skinheads and and neo Nazis, figured out that they had a great opportunity to recruit people, but their marketing was all wrong. Right. Uh, you could you could recruit somebody much easier if you went up to them without that imagery, without that language, and said, hey, are you worried about crime in your neighborhood? Right. Right? And, of course, you know, if they, you were living in a high-crime area, most people would answer yes, mm -hmm. right? Not even thinking about anything racial or anything like mm -hmm. that. And then the next question would, you know, or, or statement would be, well, do you know who most of those people commit? crimes are and, and fake statistics would be pulled out mm -hmm. and doctored you know surveys and all that stuff would, would be pulled out but also true statistics would be pulled out because if we look at the inequity of, of our prison systems most right. people who've been arrested in our country are black and brown right, right. because of yeah. racist systemic issues mm -hmm. so it was easy to back up those you know those claims with real statistics because well, white people have been arresting black people predominantly for mm -hmm. years. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so yes, it was much easier to kind of shift the approach and use things that were, you know, kind of pain points for, for most people. Uh, and they would go into those neighborhoods and say, well, you know, the crime is up because of this and because of black people moving in, because of, you know, demographics changing and look at the big cities and the way the liberals are, you know, promoting immigration and this and that. And it would just go down this rabbit hole of this fear rhetoric. Uh, you know, of course, it was very high level. None of it was accurate. None of it talked about the nuance of policies mm -hmm. and things like that. And it just preyed on people because of fear. Uh, and I think aside from fear the biggest factor for radicalization is a person's uncertainty in life yeah. uh and we are right now kimberly facing probably one of the most uncertain moments in all of our lives mm -hmm. right we're dealing mm -hmm. with a pandemic we're dealing with you know job loss people dying or you know contested politics nothing is getting done polarization what more can happen yeah. and in fact when more things do happen it just adds fuel to the fire so uh, this is a prime opportunity right now for extremists and radicalizers to go out there and look for people who are afraid who are uncertain uh and use you know kind of very you know palatable ways to to open the door mm -hmm. to radicalization and then pull them in with you know, you know, things that don't make a whole lot of sense but and during uncertain times people are you know, grasping at straws sometimes to make sense of things. So it's easier to fool them with notions like QAnon right. or, you know, conspiracy theories and, and all of these old tropes that, you know, pit us against each other without a whole lot of basis in fact. Wow. Well, now I want to uh, get to your book, but we need to take a quick break and we will be back after this message. 
There's so much going on in the world that can make it difficult to relax and decompress. You've experienced the Sunday scaries, that feeling of dread in the pit of your stomach that comes on Sunday afternoons. Now here's a totally different Sunday scaries, vitamin boosted CBD gummies. And you don't even have to wait until Sunday night rolls around. Self-care is so important and Sunday scaries is here to help. Sunday scaries believes that everyone deserves a hand on a difficult day. So if you're looking for a way to decompress, Sunday Scaries has you covered with their CBD products. Visit sundayscaries.com and use the promo code SEXYLIBERAL, all one word, at the checkout and get 25% off your order. That's 25% off at sundayscaries.com with promo code SEXYLIBERAL. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. These products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. These products are not for use by sale or to persons under the age of 18. Okay, we're back. Uh, so tell us about your book. I know you have a couple of them, but your latest book. Yeah. So my latest book, Breaking Hate, Confronting the New Culture of Extremism, is kind of a spotlight on the work that I have been doing for the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, through the stories of, of six people that I've worked with, and I'm talking about extremists that I've worked with to help them disengage from extremism. Uh, through you know stories of six people, I take people, readers, through a journey of what radicalized them and how to disengage huh. uh, people from radicalization. So it's kind of a man, you know manual or a how-to book based on the process that I've been using to help hundreds, if not thousands, of people disengage from extremism over the last 20 years. And I think it, it really applies not just to extremism and, and you know conspiracy conspiracy groups like QAnon, but I think it also kind of helps people with general potholes in their lives who may have found toxic identity community and purposes, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and other types of, of really negative uh, you know, groups and pathways as well. Um, and it's a pretty vivid journey through the lives of people and, and uh, shows, you know, how good people go bad, mm-hmm. uh, so to speak, and, and how those bad people, you know, can find a way to, to repair the, the harm that they caused and, and hopefully once again become good. I want to kind of go back uh, for a second to the fact that you had a family and you had children and it made you reassess what you were thinking. What were the steps for you? Um, first of all, how long did it take you to get, you know, like in, in your eight-year journey, at what point did you say to yourself, I can't do this anymore, I have to leave? And then what were the steps that made you leave? Like, what did you do? How did you get out of it? I would say that I very quickly, uh, about you know, a third of the way in in those eight years, realized it wasn't the place that I hmm. wanted to be. Wow. Um, but it's also not the kind of place that's a safe place to to question things yeah. or to explore other things, you know, it became my whole world. So mm-hmm. everybody I knew aside from my wife and children were a part of that movement. I had disengaged, like, you know, most cults or gangs mm-hmm. or whatever. I disengaged from everything in my life mm-hmm. to make that transition. So within that movement, there wasn't a safe place for me to say, Hey, I'm, you know, kind of questioning these things. Cause mm-hmm. I was meeting people in the real world that didn't fit the idea of what was in my head. Hmm. Right. It was, it was completely destroying the vision of, of how I saw people who were black, Jewish, brown, gay. I'd met people in the real world, but I couldn't interact with them because I didn't think it was safe. And in the movement, I couldn't go to them and say, hey, so I met this cool person Mm -hmm. today. They were gay, black, and Jewish Mm -hmm. Uh, and because it wasn't a safe place to do that. And, you know, the outside world really wasn't a place where I could explore either because I was a Nazi. Mm -hmm. It wasn't safe for them to be around me. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was a lot of 
isolated self-reflection. Uh, and I was lucky because I think a lot of people who go through that without, with not a lot of support might be overcome by that and might kind of destroy them. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, I had a place, I had a safe place where I can do that uh, and really explore those feelings without being honest with the people around me or mm-hmm. myself. Um, and it took me, you know, eight years uh, to, to walk away. But even at the end of eight years, I didn't publicly denounce what I was. I retired, kind of, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and I used an excuse of rebuilding because I'd lost my wife and children at that point. They they stopped putting up with what I was involved in. You know, my kids were three and one. My wife was not a member, so she was at some point said, "Hey, it's either you know the movement or me." And unfortunately, I chose the movement. Um, So it took me eight years to disengage. But even at the end of eight years, I didn't denounce. And it took me another four years after I left Mm -hmm. the movement to to have enough space to be able to say, this is what I was a part of. And it was 1999. I remember I I had started taking college classes um, at that point at DePaul University. And one of the first, in fact, I think it was the first class that I had taken kind of culminated at the end with you getting up in front of the whole class uh, which was about 60 people and talking, just giving them a slice of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was the first time in my life that I stood in front of people and publicly said that I was a racist, a white supremacist, a neo-Nazi, and a, and frankly, a terrorist uh, at the time. And I was afterwards embraced, you know, I yeah. barely, barely made it through, you know, it's <laughs> the speech because I was crying, but oh. um, was embraced by people who, yeah. you know, were of color who were gay and who were Jewish and said, Hey, you know, like, let's figure out how to work through that together. We know you're not that person anymore, but clearly you have some unraveling to do. Mm -hmm. And I was given a place and I'm so grateful for it because it wasn't their responsibility. They Mm -hmm. didn't have to provide me that comfort, that privilege, Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and that grace. And they did. And I'm so grateful for it because it, it really did start me, down the road of, of examining who I was, what I had done, and how I had hurt people. Yeah. Uh, and it gave me a clear direction of how to, to, to try and repair that. And I've been doing that, you know, for 20, almost 22 years since then. That's beautiful. And I want to ask you about that. But when you left, um, how, how did you do it so that you were not beaten up or killed? Or how, how did you part with them? How, how did you, you know, talk to them about it? Did you just move well, or something? No, I didn't. I stay, you know, I, I ran uh, in a lot of kind of metaphorical ways, but I stayed put in terms of geography. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, I had a, a really kind of fortunate circumstance. My wife and my children left uh, me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also had a store, a record shop at the time that was selling racist music, but the store had closed when I decided to put, to remove the racist music because I started to meet people at the store that I was embarrassed and right. ashamed to sell it in yeah. front of. Uh, and of course, people people in the movement didn't know that. They thought, you know, I was having difficulty getting imported material mm-hmm. and stuff. So I closed the store, lost my family, and I kind of lost everything at the same time. And I used that excuse mm. to the movement. I said, hey, listen, I've got to work on my family. I've got to find a job. I'll be back. Right. I just need a little bit of time. And for whatever reason, they understood that, except I never intended to go back. Mm-hmm. I used that opportunity to, to kind of run, mm-hmm. you know, from it. Uh, and live a second life. Um, and when I was comfortable enough, you know, in living that second life and I pushed out enough of the old, that's, that's the only time I felt comfortable talking about it. And that 
when that happened, oh, I got death threats. I was just going to uh, say, did you I, hear from anybody at that heard, point? <laughs> oh, yeah. I heard I heard from a lot of people. I mean, I was their leader. I mm-hmm. walked away kind of as a break, you know, to, to rebuild myself. And the next thing they heard from me was me denouncing that movement mm-hmm. and saying that I was wrong. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine how angry yeah. and, and, you know, betrayed they felt. I was a race traitor. I was, you know, worse than, their, than any enemy that they had was somebody who had betrayed them. So, you know, even to this day, uh, 20 years later, I still get, you know, oh. death threats. I still get threats and still certainly not a welcome person in, in that movement. And now uh, they see me as, as their biggest threat mm-hmm. because I am, you know, not only am I an expert on what they do, I am somebody who has lived it, mm-hmm. who has intimately experienced it. And I am a translator and a distiller of who they are. I think, you know, probably better than anybody who, who, has observed it from the outside yeah. just simply because I've lived it um, and have observed it from the outside. So they, they see me as, as somebody who, you know, is a threat to their existence yeah. um, uh, to some degree. So what do you do now? I mean, you're talking about basically rehabilitating um, white supremacists, Nazis, KKK, whatever you want to call them. Um, how is it? I mean, do people come to you? Do you find people? How does that all work? Yeah, I mean, I, listen. The the idea of rehabilitating a Nazi is not is not appealing to me, nor should it be to anybody. Hopefully, <laughs> yeah, what I'm doing right. is rehabilitating human beings out of being Nazis and, right. and, and bad people. But yeah, you know, people come to me. Uh, I don't have the bandwidth uh, to to go out and search for people because I have new people coming to me every day. Really? Wow. Um, Interesting. Yes, and and there are three different kinds of people that reach out to me. Sometimes it's the individual themselves who is in that movement and you know wants help getting out mm-hmm. and you know doesn't really know what the first step is i didn't have anybody to talk to so you mm-hmm. know, now they have somebody to yeah. kind of bridge the gap confidentially for them um another group is our family members uh you know who say hey listen my brother my cousin my mm-hmm. loved one you know is my coworker, whatever it is is part of this movement i have no idea how to, to talk them out of it how to help them how to disengage them but i care about them and i want to try and save them mm-hmm. um and then the third group is somebody like me who was in that movement and for whatever reason found their way out uh, on their own, mm-hmm. but really needs a support network of other kind of like-minded okay. people who've worked through it already to kind of be a support network for them. Um, and I have people reaching out to me every day, and I think at last count I've probably worked with over 1,500 people mm-hmm. uh, at this point, but I I've, I've can confidently say I've helped you know, at least half of that mm-hmm. uh, number you know, disengage successfully and then, you know, re- return kind of or repay, you know, it by, by, uh, fixing the damage that they cause. That's kind of the unwritten contract I have. Mm-hmm. I don't charge. I don't, you know, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a doctor. I'm, I'm just an advisor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I work with building a network of people, uh, uh, and service providers around the people I work with. So there are therapists and doctors and, mm-hmm. uh, job coaches and life coaches and, you know, educators that I, I have to build around every person I work with to help fix those potholes yeah. that led them to extremism. Because I've never once disengaged somebody by debating them, right. never mm-hmm. by telling them that they're wrong or by mm-hmm. shaming them. It's always by trying to rebuild kind of their resilience mm-hmm. as a human being. Mm-hmm. And then they, they realize on their own that what they were doing is wrong because they recognize that their hatred of other people is almost exclusively self-hatred for themselves being mm-hmm. projected onto others. Wow. And so, I mean, what do we do when we have people like Marjorie Taylor Greene 
um, basically saying racist things and supporting that movement, whether she intends to or not, which I think she does. But um, yeah. obviously, you know, and I'm, I'm absolutely guilty of it. I mean, I, I don't believe that I can shame her or any of the Republicans at this point. And when I say Republicans, unfortunately, now they have turned into a cult group that is basically backing white supremacy, whether the individuals themselves truly believe in that. Um, it, the group as a whole, it's now doing it. And so, you that's know, exactly right. Yeah. yeah and so it's exactly like right. me looking at what's going on I, when I see Marjorie again, I cannot, I do not believe that I can shame her, but my intention, if I go to point any of this out, say on Twitter is for other people. But I don't, you know, I mean, what is the best way? Because it's like when you're dealing with an individual um, and, and you're like you're talking about the psychology of this and they've got their own self-hatred. Well, I, I can't talk to Marjorie Taylor Greene and try to find out what her problem is. So how do we handle the white supremacists in a public way? Well, I think we have to use what power we have to make sure that we limit their power mm -hmm. as much as possible. You know, we can affect people like Marjorie Taylor Greene by making sure she never gets elected to a public office. Yeah, that's basically again. it. That's that's it. Yeah, and that's you know that that is maybe the only way to shame her. Yeah. Right. Is is to make sure she doesn't get elected and get right. to do uh, what you know whatever policy you know she wants to do because there are, one of the ways that they are finding power again is through like these kind of local and more you know macro type government offices school boards and things like that where they can affect a lot of power but somebody like marjorie taylor green i mean she's very vocal i mm -hmm. you know i don't know that you're going to change anybody's mind right. uh who is that vocal about what they believe in by debating them, uh, right because yeah. it's, it's, that's their currency that's the only power she has yeah. right now uh so we have to take away that power by informing them and um, that's a really and good making point, sure yeah. that they vote or run against her um, I'm, I'm very concerned actually with you know the, the future of elections in this yeah, country me too um, because we are not you know on the left or in the center mobilizing to win mm -hmm. uh, we yeah. are spending every moment trying to counter what the right is doing while they are spending every moment trying to win yeah. more seats and gain more power uh, so that's that's you know something that I think we really need to, to pay attention to, especially on the local level, school boards, you know, local elected officials, attorneys, uh, you know, county attorneys, sheriffs, things like that, who historically have been used against black and brown people, you know, you know, especially things like sheriffs uh, mm -hmm. who have a long history and things like, you know, slave patrols and whatnot, constables. Yeah. Um, we have to make sure that the people we don't want, uh, you know, to shape our our society with their hateful ideas aren't getting elected to these to these positions and that people who do reflect our values do get elected to these positions i mean that's the bottom line because they're you know i think it's true that we can't shame them i think some people don't necessarily realize that yet on social media anyway um and i i, I agree with you 100 about the democratic strategy i think it needs to be tightened up and it's very frustrating to see it not being addressed. But I do want to ask you, for instance, I had a racist uh, family member who's no longer with us. I used to argue with that family member a lot. And, and I think the moment that I, I, you know, I mean, I would assume that his family had racist, you know, growing up, his family had racist tendencies in the first place. But then I, I think he was friends when he was a child 
with some black boys who beat mm-hmm. him up. And he used that experience to just hate black people. And as a teenager, I used to talk to him and, and I would say, you know, I would, I, even though I didn't understand it fully, I understood the idea of systemic racism. I didn't have that word, but I understood mm-hmm. and I would say to him, you know, you're in a managerial position at your job. So that means you're in position, you're in a position to hire people. And, you know, I was trying to describe the systemic racism by saying, you know, you're always going to choose a white person over a qualified black person based on their skin color. And he would get very Mm -hmm. frustrated with me. And then I would ask him, you know, if white kids beat you up, would you hate all white kids? And he would get frustrated and he would just, oh, Kimberly. And he just didn't want to hear me. Um, So my question is, you know, what about people who have family members? Now, I, I don't know if, if he would have ever been able to overcome his racism because it had been there for so long and he had believed it for so long that he can, you know, I know and you know how we are as human beings. We have beliefs and we constantly repeat those beliefs and every time we repeat it, it becomes solidified. But how do we deal with people that we love that are not necessarily, I mean, do you have any advice? Is there any advice for people that you love who you know, they're not necessarily willing at that point to give up anything, but is there something we can say, a, a triggering statement, something we can do to kind of, because what I said didn't, it didn't do anything to him. You know, I, yeah. it, it just didn't work. Yeah. I mean, I think we can listen. Uh, and I think you did a really good job of listening because, it, it, you know, you were able to identify, I think, what the seed was for, for that hatred. You know, one of the things that, one of the pieces of advice I give in my new book too, and it's probably the hardest bit of advice is we have to learn to see the child and not the monster. And it doesn't matter if that, that person is 16 or 60, that child. Um, because what you described about your family member was literally something that happened to him as a child where he was shamed in some mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. And then he kind of bottled that and encapsulated it and directed it at a whole race mm-hmm. of people, mm-hmm. right? So, I mean, it, for him, that pothole, whatever that was, and, and you know, to him, that was a pothole. It, yeah. was, a, it was something that it, he found difficult to navigate around a moment in, in his, you know, history mm-hmm. that for the rest of his life, he found difficult to navigate around and that created a crater for him. And it formed some, so many of his opinions. So, you know, I think we have to learn to see the child and not the monster. Mm-hmm. And I say that, and what I mean is hatred is learned, right? Mm-hmm. None of us are born with, with that idea in our head. It's something, um, sometimes a series of things that happen to us that form that opinion. And again, it wasn't. It had really nothing to do with black people. It had something to do with his experience, his yeah. personal experience with those very specific individuals, mm-hmm. right? Who you know, how, young people get in fights all the time, but for some reason, right. that shame of that experience stuck with him mm-hmm. to form his opinions. And what I would also say is, you know, never give up because I have worked with people who, you know were seven years old and in the clan. I've worked with people who were, you know, in their twenties and, and, you know, committing acts of violence that, you know, are unthought of and, and found a way to really, you know, recognize that. And not only that, but work tremendously to repair the damage they caused, because it's not just about saying, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. you know, redemption without accountability is just privilege mm-hmm. in my book. <laughs> we have to, we have to do the work of redemption, right? It's hard work Mm -hmm. and there have to be results of that. You can't just wash your hands of something you've done. And I think, you know, speaking of Republicans and 
in our history and in, in, in so many points in our racist history i feel like so many people want to just wash our hands of all the awful things we've yeah. done in our history and not even really acknowledge them to the point of fixing our own potholes as a society mm-hmm. in order to be able to move on further ground you know on firmer ground going forward yeah um so you know i'm, I'm a pothole fixer if people want to help <laughs> people that they love they have to be pothole fixers yeah you fix the potholes and you bring people to a, a more positive sense of identity community and purpose and you know at the same time it does seem a bit overwhelming though because there are very few people like you and therefore you know there's it's it's quite overwhelming to think about what's happening and how, like you were saying, Fox News and the Internet has the ability to reach millions of people while you only have the ability and, you know, people like you. I'm sure there are others out there that are maybe not as high profile as you but are doing kind of similar work. But the, but unfortunately, you can't compete with the numbers when you have the Fox News. And I, I, I'm you're concerned and I'm concerned, too. But what would you say? What do you say about this? rise of white supremacy across the globe i mean how concerned are you i guess about that because it's not just here it's all over and we're seeing it and do you feel like there's a real chance it's going to take hold or do you think there's hope that we can stop it well i'm very concerned um you know it's not you know i just want to be clear it's not just people like me i think we all have the power to do the work that i'm doing you know it's it's really about empathy um, mm-hmm. but accountability as well um and i think we, we have the the empathy part figured out i think we know that like that we need to do that it's the accountability and holding people mm-hmm. accountable that we find very very hard for whatever yes. reason um it, but it, i'm really concerned kimberly because this is you know not something that's just in the united states it's something that's happening globally it's happening in europe and in eastern europe and even latin american com- yeah. countries like brazil uh you know and and, and then you know, other, you know, Asian countries as well. And, and, and it's the first time in my life, uh, and I think in the history of this movement, that all of the, the, the many pieces of this movement, whether it's the Klan or the skinheads or, you know, the militia groups or, you know, the conspiracy theorists, they used to all kind of be separate, right? Mm-hmm. They all kind of fell under the same umbrella and, and shared adjacent ideologies. This is really the first time in their history that those walls have come down and they've all sort sort of coalesced together, right? Not just, you know, ideologically uh, within that movement, but also geographically. Yeah. It's the first time in history where, you know, Americans, uh, you know, because of, of relationships they've been forging for decades, have very strong alliances with people in Europe. And it's not just, you know, kind of your street soldier people yeah. that are part of these movements anymore. We're talking about politicians, people who are elected to the highest offices of the land in certain places who are now, you know, kind of spouting off these, these same uh, belief systems. And, you know, we also have the power of the Internet, and the power of, of, you know, certain media who are who are also kind of parroting all these things so it really is a moment mm-hmm. right now where uh, we have to make a decision mm-hmm. if we are going to you know meet in the middle <laughs> which to me just means sliding into complicity with extremists mm-hmm. uh, or if we are going to put our foot down and say this is not acceptable in our society and yeah. we will not allow it uh we will not allow it through you know we will create laws and policies that won't allow it mm-hmm. uh we will educate our children and future generations so that they're not uh raised in this but it really comes down to changing and acknowledging the systemic and institutional racism that exists yeah. that has existed for 400 years because if we don't we are creating a perfect environment for future extremists to thrive but yeah. you know there it's a 
it's a complicated thing and you know jobs and infrastructure and all the things education and access to healthcare those are all the types of things that i think over time will eliminate the need for people to move towards extremism hmm. we all need a better foundation yeah so you know maybe one of the most important people in our government right now is, is the secretary uh, pete Buttigieg, who's in charge of jobs and infrastructure mm-hmm. if we put people to work if we can get people access to education health care mental health care um that is how we start to undo uh, you know all of these needs to go into these kind of out of the box you know solutions like extremist ideology yeah oh it, it feels we can do it yeah I... we can do it <laughs> but it takes a commitment it does it's take a take commitment a and then so um i guess the last question is now it's kind of the same and i think i know the answer but just just to see what you have to say um, when it comes to, you know, I mean, there's, we all have the racist relative, but then we also have the relative that is maybe totally into, you know, the current Republican Party, which like I already, you know, we've both agreed they are backing up white supremacy. But the reason that they're with, the, the, that they're behind them now, it's not necessarily because of white supremacy. It's, you know, they, they can say it's economic anxiety and maybe they'll mm-hmm. go along with some of the racist ideas, but their bottom line is just being selfish um, or being brainwashed. I mean, I have a family member right now who is alive and, you know, buys all the crap. She just buys it all. And right. I, you know, I wonder what your advice would be when, you know, I mean, I don't talk politics with her. Uh, I just feel like I don't, I don't think I would, not that I would win, win is the wrong word, but I mean, win an argument or win a debate or get hurt. Like, I don't think there's anything I could say because she said that the local, she, she doesn't believe or doesn't like the local news. And I'm not talking about like the Sinclair news, just the straight up local news with no opinion. And so do you believe there is a way uh, to communicate with those people, um, especially those people who have, you have known for a very long time? And in fact, you know, while some of the belief systems are still there uh, from when she was younger, they've absolutely been radicalized. And, you know, she used to laugh at John Birch Society, and basically now she is part of that. And so um, is there a way that you can nuance, you can talk to somebody without being angry and get them to see, do you think, what they're going through, or do you think they're lost causes and that you just have to vote the, vote the people out that uh, are running with those same ideologies and then it makes it harder for the rest of them to thrive in that. I mean, I don't know. Is there advice for, for that? Well, you know, I think that there is something to be said about you know, metaphorically cutting the head off the snake, right? If, mm-hmm. if the influencers aren't out there, if the Fox News is and the, you know, the, the former President Trumps aren't given platforms to espouse that, of course, it's much harder to get exposed to that because, mm-hmm. you know, it took me being in an alley, you know, 14 years old to get exposed to that. Yeah. You know, if it's everything that we see on television or, you know, what the most powerful people are saying, well, people are going to buy into that, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, and what I would say is, you know, you, you, you shouldn't talk politics with people right. like that who, <laughs> right. you, who you know you've had arguments with because you're playing from a different rule book. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going in thinking two plus two is four. Right. They're going in thinking two plus two is five. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing you can do if that's how they've been raised and taught, mm-hmm. you know, for years that, you know, that you're right and they're wrong. There's no way you'll come mm-hmm. to blows before you acknowledge that, you know, their yeah. reality is wrong. Uh, so I think you have to focus on things that you 
both fundamentally agree on yeah. family um yeah. you know things like hell i mean like just the, the intrinsic things about us right some mm-hmm. of the things that we rarely talk about like our love for shared loved ones mm-hmm. our hobbies our you know interest in you know nature and sports and things like that find a way to connect on those things first mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe eventually you'll go off track. Certainly you will, right? Mm-hmm. Like once you get into talking about, you know, things that, uh, you know, that you disagree on, you will go off track, but you always have a place to come back to. If you start out off the bat mm-hmm. talking about things that you disagree with, you never have that point right. of reference to go back to. So, you know, one of the tricks that I found, and, uh, you know, I sit across from, from Nazi, literal Nazis, mm-hmm. you know, almost on a daily basis. Uh, I, there's not much I agree with with them on so you know what i do is i focus on the things that that we both you know fundamentally yeah. agree on people we love you know our, our you know the things that we love to do and and, and things like that and, and we just take it from there explore from there it's much harder to dis- disagree with somebody you've built a relationship with even if they're a family member right. you know you've grown you've grown apart find a way to to get back to that if you care about them enough um is everybody savable? Uh, I don't know, um, but I tend to to want to think so, yeah. uh, because I know that it could have been really easy for somebody thirty years ago or twenty, you know, twenty some years ago to to think that about me. Mm-hmm. And had they had they really, and it would have been really easy for them to think that based on what I was doing, saying, mm-hmm. you know, I, I was a lost cause. Um, but people did take a chance on me, and I'm grateful they did, because if they hadn't, I don't know where I'd be right now. Hmm. Uh, but because they did, I do know where I am right now and and, uh, and how I've been able to you know, maybe affect change with others as well. Well, and, and the point you make about finding common ground, and I do that. Uh, I think this particular family member is a lost cause. But um, I think the common ground, it it makes sense in talking about your own personal situation because it was, you know, your wife and your children that kind of jolted you into thinking a little bit differently. And if you have a family member or friend who is reachable, because like, you know, maybe not everybody's going to be reachable, but the ones who are reachable, if they start having compassion or empathy for you, then perhaps that is the road to, you know, starting to kind of get in that space where, you know, you could, I mean, I'm certainly not an advisor, but, but maybe there is a, a place where you'd say something that could trigger them. In, in, in fact, there's a, a guy that I know, his name is David Weissman. He used to be mm-hmm. a full on, have you heard of him? He's on Twitter. Oh yeah, but I so he, so he's a MAGA. He was a MAGA turned liberal, and you know it it, it took a, a conversation with Sarah Silverman to get him to go wait a minute, and then he took it upon himself to do yeah. you know to go research and 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 look for different points of view. Now he was clearly open to those points of view, but it was because of something and he was hardcore MAGA. He said all the stuff that we're seeing right now, everybody's saying, and and he was saying all that same thing. And then Sarah said something to him that just, it didn't completely make him into a liberal overnight because that doesn't happen. It was a journey that took about a year. But I think that maybe what you're talking about by appealing to you know that kind of commonality someone might be a little bit more open to the idea of looking at oh wait a minute that person isn't as bad as i thought you know yeah i mean i I think it's about fixing potholes identifying and fixing potholes too i mean happy whole um you know kind of 
people who are filled with joy typically don't become extremists. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, you know, they're, they're not running to, you know, join a gang or, or to hurt other people. You know, it's, it's about, you know, feeling like you have what you need mm -hmm. to feel whole. Uh, and I would suspect that people like David or people like your family member, they've, there were some potholes that, mm -hmm. you know, that led them to that belief system. And yeah. when they were there, they found some reward in it. So mm -hmm. it's really about identifying kind of what led them there mm -hmm. uh, and fixing those things because it's not, it's never happiness that, that leads you to, to hurting other people. Right. It's, it's typically some sort of a void or a deficit. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I don't think anybody's unreachable. I think, I suspect that if you were to, to really dig in and, into your family member, you'll find that there were some push and pull factors, mm -hmm. the push factors being the potholes and the pull factors being whatever identity, community, and purpose she developed out of being involved in that. And yeah. it's, it's provided more of a reward than whatever she found, you know, on the outside. Right. Um, hmm. Maybe something changed, something may have happened, you know, it could be loss, it could be grief, it could be, yeah. you know, physical or mental health challenge. I mean, it could really be anything. Right. Um, and I suspect if you look, you'll find those. And, and yeah, I think I know what it is. is I do to, think I know what it is. Is, yeah. to, is to fix those things or wow. to help anyway. Well, God, what an interesting character you are. And, and I just personally want to thank you for the work you're doing because it's always white supremacy has always scared the shit out of me. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I, you know, I don't it scare us all. Yeah, it should scare us all. And, and what you're doing is incredibly beautiful. It's brave. And I, I thank you. And I know my listeners. Thank you. Um, is there anything you'd like to add? Well, I'm just really grateful to be here. And again, I'm, I'm privileged. We still you know, live in a society where folks that don't look like me aren't getting the same chances as, as right. me, you know, somebody yeah. who literally used to be, you know, a Nazi. So we need to change that uh, and make sure it's an equitable place for everybody. One of the ways that I think, you know, we can all do that is by acknowledging, you know, our, our nation's potholes mm -hmm. in our search yes. for identity, community, and purpose. Yeah. And one of the ways I'm doing that is through a new podcast that I've launched. It's called uh, F Your Racist History, and <laughs> it examines all of the really kind of overlooked, hidden, uh, racist origin stories of America, you know, from Henry Ford, who we see as an icon of industry in America, but in reality was one of the inspirations for Hitler's anti-Semitism. Um, you know, Henry Ford was a, was a person who probably did more for uh, Nazism and white supremacy in, in, in America than, than most other figures yeah. in our history have. So I, I kind of lift the, the veil or pull off the hood, so to speak, on, on a lot of those things in our American history uh, to educate people to, to really see, um, you know, what it is that led us to this place. Where can people find your book? I think they can find my book at, at any uh, bookstore, certainly at libraries uh, and online. Uh, and uh, I've got two books. One is my memoir, which tells more of my story, and then my new book, which is Breaking Hate, that talks about the process that I use. And, and I suspect you can find them all at uh, at least links to it at christianpicciolini.com, and, and they can go to your website to figure out how to spell that. Yes, well, um, and, and what is your uh, Twitter handle? It is uh, C. Picciolini, so it's my first initial and my last name. 
Okay, so I am going to include those uh, links to the Patreon description of the show. Now, I know a lot of people listen to this show, whether it's on Apple Podcasts or on the Stephanie Miller Network. So if you want to get that information, come on over to the Patreon. That's patreon.com slash startmeup. You're going to be able to find all his links to his website. And of course, you can find me at author Kimberly, K-I-M-B-E-R-L-E-Y on Twitter. And Christian, thank you so much for being on the show. It's my pleasure, Kimberly. Thank you very much. All right, you take care. Bye-bye.